Taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. And as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zielinski. The Sheila Zielinski Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now... Here is your host, End Time Watchwoman, Sheila Zielinski. Hello listeners and welcome to this very special February 18th, 2015, Wednesday edition. Thank you all for tuning in tonight and a big warm shout out to all the WWCR listeners. My guest tonight changed my life. I didn't really fully wake up until my Uncle Wally, thank God, gave me a copy of The True Story, The Bilderberg Group, in 2007, and the rest is history, you could say. It's not just a privilege, but an incredible honor for me to introduce the listeners to Mr. Daniel Estelin. He is an award-winning investigative journalist, international best-selling author of such books as I just mentioned, The True Story, The Bilderberg Group. He is a Nobel Peace Prize nominee and an arguably the world's most daring and courageous reporter on the planet today, I believe, and at personal cost and unimaginable risk, Daniel Estelin has gone to great lengths, folks, to bring to tasks the crimes of these global elites. Estelin is a very dangerous man to the status quo. He is tenacious, courageous, and he has certainly been in the crosshairs of the global power brokers for two decades. He is a preeminent historian of the global elite, a remarkable scholar, and really one of the most outspoken public intellectuals. He's joining me on a live feed all the way from Spain. Our Skype connection is not great as he's on location of his film, so we'll just do the best we can. Daniel Estelin, welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you on the program. Well, thank you so much. I hope I can live up to all this hype. Oh, I but, think uh, you've lived up to it well. It is, it is great to be on your show. It's not the first time I'm on, and I've listened to quite a few of the episodes, and uh, for me it's also a privilege to be on your show. Thank you, Daniel. In the true story of the Bilderberg Group, you were really one of the first men, really, to publicly expose this shadowy cabal of really some of the world's most powerful manipulators again and again. You know, you've bravely journeyed to the epicenter of hell, really, to uncover some of the most mind-boggling crimes by these men who run the world. Give us a sense of what is that like to sort of go where no man has gone before, in a sense. Well, you know, I wasn't the first one. Spotlight was, you know, was doing it back in the 1960s and early 70s, and then Jim Tucker took over, and Jim Tucker died a couple of years back. And uh, um, I kind of got into it in the early 1990s when a friend of mine, it was actually over lunch in Toronto at uh, a Spanish restaurant just on Young Street called Segovia, um, uh, where I met with a friend of mine, uh, and uh, over steak and potato lunch, uh, he was uh, telling me about the, the secret society or private organization or, you know, some, some kind of, as you call it, shadowy cabal of these individuals who are doing these, you know, unseemly things to humanity. And I kind of sat there looking at him and listening to him. And uh, I thought to myself, this guy is nuts. And what really caught my attention was the fact that, you know, he was telling me back in 1990. 
too early 1993, I think it was like January, February 1993, these people have actually decided behind closed doors at some, you know, God knows where hotel, that uh, in a couple of years down the line, 1995, 1996, Quebec would separate from the rest of Canada because the uh, uh, powerful people in the United States needed to balance the budget. It was all this kind of stuff, you know, the kinds of things that, uh, you know, people who read my books or listen to an alternative media, uh, which, you know, doesn't pair the mainstream press, uh, they may get the same kind of sense of, of I don't know what you would call it, uh, 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 freakism, uh, uh, hedonism, or, or whatever you want to call it. Certainly, um, I remember the smirk on my face and, uh, well, you know, 1995 came around and suddenly I was caught with the rest of Canada uh, in the middle of the situation where these seemingly unknown organizations from the extreme left and the right, political groupings no one has ever heard of, uh, actually being pushed front and center by this international and national mainstream press. And when I saw that, I kind of thought back to that, you know, lunch in uh, Segovia restaurant uh, in Toronto two years before in 1993. And I kind of, you know, asked myself a rhetorical question, which kind of got me on the way to investigating all this stuff. You know, if the politicians and the presidents and the prime ministers of Canada and the United States really have no say in what and who does what and where, then who the heck runs the world from behind the scenes? And that's how I kind of got into it and stumbled across these builders something or other at the time. I didn't know what they were. And people still call them Bindelberg, Bilderbing, or, you know, strange, funny little names. But Or as Glenn Beck yeah. calls it, the Bilderberg group. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, the, you know, I guess, uh, you know, a bit of an explanation is in order. You know, in the world of international finance, without a doubt, there are those who steer the events and those who react to the events. And while the latter, they're better known, they're greater numbers and seemingly more powerful, I think it is fair to say that the true power rests with the former. At the center of this global financial system of the oligarchical financial oligarchy, that's kind of repetitive, represented by the Bilderberg Group. Now, Bilderberg Group isn't some kind of a, uh, a secret society. It's not an evil all-seeing eye or a Jewish Masonic conspiracy it's not a conspiracy, you know, it's a, uh, or conspiracy theory, I should say. It's rather it's a conspiracy reality. Uh, you know, no group of people, I don't care how powerful they are, sitting around in a dark room, holding hands, staring at a crystal ball, planning the world's domination. What is very true about this Bilderberg Society, it's a very dynamic organization that it is changes with the times, absorbs and, and creates new parts while excreting the remains of the... Uh, of the decaying parts, members of the Bilderberg organization come and go, but the system, and that's what's important to understand, the system itself, it hasn't changed. It is a self-perpetuating system, a virtual spider web of interlocked financial, political, economic, and industry interests with this Venetian ultramontane fondy model at the center. And again, it's, it's a meeting of people who represent a certain ideology, a medium of bringing together financial institutions, which are the world's most powerful and most predatory financial interests. And at this time, you could say it's this combination, which is the worst enemy of humanity. But again, Bilderberg is not the top of any pyramid. It's not an all-seeing eye of anything whatsoever. It's a conveyor belt, just like the Trilateral Commission, Council on Foreign Relations, Lupinaya Circle, Bohemian Grove, think tanks, foundations, you know, NGOs, they all kind of this interlocked juggernaut working together. But the real, I guess, decision-making process is done at a much, much higher level. And I guess, you know, in, in, in a sense, as you said at the beginning, it's not that I've discovered Bilderberg, but I kind of brought it out into the open and made it cool for people to talk about it, you know, without, you know, appearing freakish or nuts. Well, you're right. The Bilderberg Group is not just a conspiracy theory about world domination. It's real. However, it's really ironic, Daniel, that in over 50 years of annual meetings, there's been really no information about what's been discussed ever really officially reported, you know, despite the fact there's been a huge concentration of power and money that goes through this. And I love how for years the media said things like, Bilderberg Group? Never heard of it. Then years later it was, oh yeah, Bilderberg, they're, they're real, but it's just a global think tank. I mean, it's just ironic that, you know, now it's okay to talk about it, but years ago, never heard of it. Nothing to see here. 
Well, you know, you know, the whole the whole idea is the ideology is ideology is not so much a one world company or one world government, let's say a new world order, as you know, here so often in, in, in certain circles people talk about, you know, one world order and and you know they, they, they say, ha, ah, you know, George Bush father said that and, and Gorbachev said that and Pope John Paul II said that, as if all these individuals are part of the conspiracy. It's not that at all. You know, it's uh, the ideology is rather one world company, limited corporations with a lot more power than any government on the planet. And we actually show this to be the case because back in 1968, at the Bilderberg meeting in Canada, in Montreal, Blonde, uh, just on the outskirts of, of, uh, of Montreal, George Ball, the, uh, the undersecretary for economic affairs with JFK and Johnson, he said, and I quote, uh, where does one find a legitimate base for the power of corporate management, management to make decisions that can profoundly affect the economic life of nations to whose governments they have only limited responsibility. And this is what Bilderberg really is all about. It's the whole idea of creation of these global you know, financial cartels that have a lot more power than any government on the planet. And again, we see this on a daily basis you know, in Europe and the United States, you know, in, in countries like Spain where the, the elected president has very little true power, you know, the financial and economic decision-making as up to now been, you know, made by the Troika, representatives of, you know, the financial oligarchy who come to Spain and tell Spain what to do. We can say the same thing about Spain. We can say the same thing about Cyprus. We can say the same thing about Portugal and Ireland a few years back and, and Italy, which is, you know, is, is going through one of the worst recessions in, in, in its history. We can say the same thing about the United States, most nations in South America, Africa, you know, we don't even need to mention that, Southeast Asia, and so on and so forth. So again, it's not the idea of, of, of governments, of the supranational, you know, billionaires, but rather the, the idea of, of this economic power controlled by these enormous, you know, transnational corporations that control the world from behind the scenes. Well, speaking of this seemingly economic implosion, what's your take on what we're seeing right now in the U.S.? It looks like Russia is going towards a gold standard. We see Russia and U.S. kind of the two big bullies <coughs> rolling up their sleeves, ready for battle. Give us a breakdown of what you see playing out here. Well, it's funny you should say that, you know, uh, mentioned Russia and the United States and the gold standard. Well, one of the, you know, biggest concerns for the United States, and again, when we kind of look at economic developments and geopolitics, uh, you, you know, you can't take a country and, and separate it from the rest of the world. It's, you know, we're, we're living in this uh, globalized economy, globalized interlocked world where, you know, whatever is done in one part of the world immediately affects the developments anywhere else, just as our interview because of the uh, uh, information revolution wants us up online in, you know, in a millisecond. Uh, you know, somebody in Vancouver can pick it up and send it to their buddies in, in you know, who, who are teaching English in in, uh, in Japan, and they send it to their girlfriend in, in Australia, and they send it to their brother-in-law who lives in Argentina. And, you know, what Sheila and Daniel Estrell have done in, you know, this this hour, you want to know where you are. I'm, you know, I'm in Spain. You know, people all over the world might, you know, be able to actually listen to it thousands of times over in a matter of seconds. So the point is that everything affects everything. So what the United States is doing not only in America, but how it affects, you know, their near future. We could see it playing out in, in the Ukraine. We could see it playing out, you know, in other parts of, of Europe. We could see it playing out, you know, in Greece and South America. And so basically what, you know, uh, what, to answer your question, very few people understand that the United States right now are in a very, very tenuous position, very dangerous economic position to them, not because they're, in, you know, in the re depression or recession, but because what Russia is doing to them and how they're forcing America's and Western hand. And what Russia is doing, or Putin is doing, is they're, you know, selling oil and gas for physical gold. And no matter how strange it may seem, this is exactly what's going to cause the end game for the United States. Now, Putin is not shouting about it all over the world. You know, he never does. And, of course, you know, he still accepts American dollars as an intermediate means of payment. But Russia immediately exchanges these dollars obtained from the sale of oil and gas for physical gold. And just to give you an idea, you know, in the last two quarters alone, Russia has purchased an incredible amount of gold. For example, in the third quarter of 2014, they bought 55 tons of gold out of the 93 tons which physical gold which actually sold. In other words, they bought 60% of all physical gold in the world, more than all the central banks of all the countries combined. Now, not so long ago, British scientists 
have successfully come to the same conclusion, and it was published actually uh, in the United States Geological Survey. Uh, not, I can't remember exactly the date, but basically what they were saying is that Europe will not be able to survive without energy supply from Russia. We all know that. Now, translated from English to any other language in the world means the following. The world will not be able to survive if oil and gas from Russia is subtracted from the global balance of energy supply. So the Western world, which has been built on this hegemony of the petrodollar, is in a catastrophic situation in which it cannot survive without oil and gas supplies from Russia. And Russia is now ready to sell its oil and gas to the West only in exchange for physical gold. And the twist of Putin's game is that the mechanism for the sale of Russian energy to the West only for gold now works regardless of whether the West agrees to pay for Russian oil and gas with its artificially cheap gold or not. And since Russia is a constant flow of dollars from the sale of oil and gas, it will be able to convert these dollars to buy gold at current very depressed gold prices, depressed by all means by the West. And this equates gold price, which has been artificially and meticulously lowered by the Fed via artificially inflated purchasing power of the dollar through market manipulation. Now, what's interesting is that the suppression of gold prices by the Special Department of the United States government called ESF, Exchange Stabilization Fund, with the aim of stabilizing the dollar, has been made official policy and into law in the United States. And in the financial world, it is generally accepted as a given that gold is anti-dollar. In other words, the gold price runs inverse to the value of the dollar. Now, if you kind of go back a little bit, a little bit, 1971, when the United States President Nixon, he closed the gold window, ending the free exchange of dollars for gold guaranteed by the United States in 1944 right. at Bretton Conference. Yeah. And then in 2000. Just last year, Putin has reopened the gold window, so to speak, without asking Washington's permission. And so right now, the West spends much of its efforts and resources to suppress the prices of gold and oil, thereby, on the one hand, to distort the existing economic reality in favor of the U.S. dollar, and also, on the other hand, to destroy the Russian economy, refusing to play the role of obedient vassal of the West. And basically what you're seeing right now is, again, Putin selling Russian energy in exchange for dollars artificially propped up by the efforts of the West. And with these dollars, Putin, as I said before, he buys gold artificially devalued against the United States dollar. Now, there's also another interesting element in Putin's game. It's Russian uranium. Most people don't realize it, but every sixth light bulb in the United States depends on its supply, which Russia sells to the United States for dollars, which are immediately converted to physical gold. So in exchange for Russian oil, gas, and uranium, the West pays Russia with dollars, purchasing power of which is artificially inflated against oil and gold by the efforts, manipulations, in other words, of the West. But Putin uses these dollars, again, to withdraw physical gold from the West in exchange at a price denominated in U.S. dollars, artificially lowered by the same West. And is the game is this truly brilliant economic combination by Putin puts the West led by the United States in a position of a snake aggressively and diligently devouring its own tail. And so the end game in this whole situation I think is very, very predictable. And the end game unfortunately is not going to be played out in America's favor. Now the West can spend as much of its efforts and resources to artificially increase the purchasing power of the dollar, lower oil prices, artificially lower the purchasing power of gold. The problem of the West, and they of course understand it, is that the stocks of physical gold, instead of you know paper gold, are finite. They're not unlimited. Therefore, the more the West devalues oil, you know, which plays against Russian interests, but also American interests, and also Saudi interests. So the more West devalues oil and gold against the U.S. dollar, the faster it loses devaluing gold from not infinite resources. And so in this uh, brilliantly played game by Putin, economic combination gold from the reserves of the West is rapidly flowing to Russia, to China, to Brazil, to Kazakhstan, to India, in other words, you know, BRIC countries. And the current rate of reduction of reserves of physical gold the West simply does not have the time to do anything against 
Putin's Russia until the collapse of the entire Western petrodollar world. And in the chess situation, uh, you know, I come from the Soviet Union, we all love playing chess. It's called checkmate. Now, the Western world has never faced such economic events and phenomena that are happening right now. If you kind of go back historically to the early 1980s, when the Bilderbergers actually got together and decided, you know, to suppress the gold prices to destroy the Soviet Union, this is exactly what happened. You know, the former USSR rapidly sold gold during the fall of oil prices in the 1980s. And so today, Putin, which is a great historian, you know, Russia rapidly buys gold during the fall of oil prices. Thus, Russia poses a real threat to the American model of petrodollar world domination. And of course, the main principle of world petrodollar model is allowing Western countries led by the United States to live at an expense of the labor and resources of the countries based on the role of the U.S. currency dominant in the global monetary system. And, you know, uh, led the, the role of the United States dollar in this global monetary system is that it is the ultimate means of payment. This means that the national currency of the United States in the structure of the global monetary system is the ultimate asset accumulator to exchange, which to any other asset does not make sense. So if you kind of fast forward, I'm, you know, I'm going to finish this uh, in, in, a, in about a minute or so. And what we've seen is that the West in the past has used two methods to eliminate the threat to hegemony of petrodollar model in the world and the concept of excessive privileges for the West. And one of these methods, of course, are called the revolutions. And the second method, which is usually applied by the West of the first one fails, is the military aggression and bombing. But in Russia's case, both of these methods are either impossible or unacceptable to the West. We've seen the color revolutions didn't work. We've seen that the oil suppression prices is not working. We've tried to destroy the ruble that hasn't worked. The, you know, the Western propaganda is not working all that well either. Because, you know, again, so what we're seeing right now is what the Russians have learned in the 1990s when 40% of Russia's population literally overnight bankrupt. And then you've lost, about the 1990s, about 12 million people. And unfortunately, again, the color revolution hasn't worked. The war with Russia is not going to lead anywhere because Russia is a nuclear power. If somebody uh, wants to chance that war, you're looking at the destruction of the entire human race. And so the point is, again, if you kind of ask yourself a rhetorical question, and it's a horrific rhetorical question for the United States and the West is, how long will the West be able to buy oil and gas from Russia in exchange for the physical gold? And finally, what will happen to the U.S. petrodollar model and the Western world after the West runs out of physical gold to pay for Russian oil and gas and uranium, as well as for the Chinese goods? And Putin and company or whoever will be in power then, will say, no way, Jose, you're not getting any more oil, gas, or uranium from us. What's going to happen then? And this, Sheila, is called checkmate. And this is something that the United States, the establishment, the elite, the Bilderbergs, whoever these individuals behind the curtain may be, you know, the shadowy power structures, they understand this very, very well. Well, you mentioned the word checkmate, and it really appears as though China and Russia are playing chess for supremacy here, cutting deals to sidestep the dollar. We know China's been in stockpile mode for years, back up the truck and buy with both hands. What's interesting, and it was noted in a Chinese press that they were melting down their exchange-approved bars and making coins. So if China takes dominion with the gold-backed trade note, the U.S. would desperately need gold. U.S. has no gold. China's already buying gold with the yuan. And if China's bypassing international trade currency, money-infused, offering a chance to win without forced austerity, I mean, could China, I guess, Daniel, monetize gold and make it very high if they have a lot of gold? Well, you know, the, uh, the Russians and the Chinese uh, working together, of course, you couldn't have a successful foreign policy, uh, which is being exercised by Russia right now, without full endorsement from, you know, the Chinese uh, government. Uh, just to give you an idea of what's going on, how this uh, arrangement and endorsement is actually shaping, you know, the world economy and politics. China recently announced that it will cease to increase its gold and currency reserve denominated in U.S. dollars. Now, considering the growing trade deficit between the United States and China, and of course the current deficit is about five times or six times in favor of China, then this statement translated from the financial language says the following. 
China stopped selling their goods for dollars. And of course, the world media chose not to notice this grandest in the recent monetary historical events. The issue is not that China literally refuses to sell its goods for U.S. dollars. The Chinese, as the Russians, they will continue to accept U.S. dollars as an intermediate means of payment for its goods. But having taken dollars, China will immediately get rid of them and replace them with something else in the structure of its gold and currency reserves. Otherwise, the statement made by the monetary authorities of China loses its meaning. And they said, we're stopping the increase of our gold and currency reserves denominated in U.S. dollars. That is, China will no longer buy United States Treasury bonds for dollars earned from the trade with any countries as they did this before. So China will replace all the dollars that it will receive for its goods, not only from the U.S., but from all over the world with something else, not to increase their gold currency reserves denominated in U.S. dollars. And here is the interesting question. What will China replace all the trade dollars with? What currency or an asset? And of course, the analysis of this current monetary policy of China shows that most likely the dollars coming from trade or a substantial chunk of them, China will quietly replace and de facto is already replacing with what? With physical gold, as is the case with Russia. And it should be noted separately that the global market for physical gold is extremely small if you compare it to the world market for physical oil supplies, for example. And especially the world market for physical gold is microscopic, minuscule in nature compared to the entirety of the world market for physical, physically delivered oil, gas, uranium, and goods. When I say physical gold, it's very different than to own physical gold that you can touch and gold on paper, which is a contract gold, you know, or a paper energy resource, for example. So Russia is now withdrawing gold from the West, but only in its physical, not paper form. And China is doing the same thing. And so China accomplishes this by acquiring from the West this artificially devalued physical gold as payment for physical delivery of real products to the West. And so the West hopes that China and, and, and Russia will accept as payment for the air energy resources and good, you know, this garbage coin, you know, or, or paper gold of various kinds of denominations, and they're not doing this. Russia and China are only interested in real physical gold. And as a reference, the turnover, I was looking at it the other day, of the market of paper gold only for gold futures is estimated at about $360 billion per month. But physical delivery of gold is only worth $280 million a month. And this equates to a ratio of trade of paper gold versus physical gold to 1,000 to 1. And so if you kind of use this, the mechanism of active withdrawal from the market of one artificially lowered by the West financial asset, which is gold, in exchange for another artificially inflated by the West financial asset, which is the United States dollar, Putin has therefore started the countdown to the end of the world hegemony of petrodollar. And thus Putin has put the West in a deadlock of the absence of any positive economic prospects. And this is why we're seeing such incredible in-your-face duplicity. You're talking about, you know, a media, fifth estate propaganda, because the United States and the West and the elite, they are desperate. They know that they cannot attack Russia physically. They're trying to do it through their proxies. That is not working. Putin is a remarkable strategist. And needless to say, we're seeing the results and the consequences of these actions. They've tried everything in their power, from lowering the oil prices to trying to destroy the ruble and to impose these unbelievable sanctions against Russia and Russians leaving uh, or live in Russia, leaving to come to the West. And none of this is working. Of course, none of it will work because the Russian nation, the Soviet Union or Russia, they've lived through the 1990s and they saw what was done to them and they're not going to go for it and not going to bite you know, the bullet again. Daniel, what do you think is the next game plan here? Where are we headed here in the coming months? In other words, what can we expect from these elites in 2015? Well, it's a a very good question. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there. One of the things, one of the recent developments is uh, this shocking move by the Swiss, which is, you know, part of this enormous global meltdown. If you've been following, you know, the Swiss back to the euro, the Swiss National Bank, 
recently released the peg between the euro and Swiss franc, which was at 120. In other words, for every euro, you got uh, one uh, franc and, and 20 cents. And it's been, you know, in pretty much the, you know, the standard currency exchange for quite a bit. And so this caused massive moves in the currency markets as well as massive losses for the Swiss National Bank. And so the euro-Swiss franc went down by a maximum of 30%. In about five minutes, and 30% is an enormous move. You could talk about, you know, brokers lost, you know, gazillions of dollars in those five minutes across the world. You know, there was no price and panic ensued at Swiss banks. If you kind of look at it, uh, there were stops in the market, and the stops were triggered at the very low of the collapse because there was no market, there was no price, nobody could do anything. What banks could do was take out positions at the lows. So people have lost 30% on the Euro-Swiss model, which everyone thought was such a safe bet because, you know, Swiss franc is, is probably the safest currency in the world because that's what the Swiss National Bank had said. And so the Swiss franc literally soared 25% against the U.S. dollar in a matter of minutes. And so, again, the reason, you know, we're talking about this is that the Swiss National Bank is now sitting on the biggest speculative currency position of any major central bank in the world. You know, the, the, the balance sheet is about 500 and something, 520, I think, billion Swiss francs and over 80% of Swiss GDP, which is an extremely dangerous position, you know, for Switzerland. It's virtually impossible to get out of this position without a lot of tens of billions of francs or even as much as 100 billion. And this is exactly what we're seeing. Now, this is all part of this, you know, this, this positioning we're seeing right now uh, being taken by national banks, central banks, because we're literally entering a stage beginning of this much larger global financial meltdown. And if kind of what people are saying, you know, financial analysts and economists who really understand what's going on is that this uh, tremendous volatility in the world markets is directly related to the fundamentals and the fundamentals of the global economy are not good. They were not good for a very long time. And in the United States, they try to tell you that things are getting better. You know, uh, the good times are just around the corner. People forget that corners are never round times are not coming anytime soon because, again, uh, in the United States, you know, you keep hearing that low oil prices were going to put money into people's pockets. And that means that the consumer was going to put more money into retailer cash registers. But the retail sales numbers are just as low or lower than they have ever been. And so, the, you know, November, December retail sales, you know, they would revise dramatically lower. And so, again, we're entering the stage of this global depression. Most people know that the global economy is in a slowdown. And most people understand, you know, that we're going to hell, you know, in a, in a handbasket. And the reason prices are going down is because people don't have the money to buy things. That's why retail sales are down, not only in the United States, but also in Europe, also in South America and Australia and, you know, in most of Asia and Russia. You know, this is called deflation. But do any of these puppets have the courage to call it what it really is? They don't because it is a depression. These are depressionary conditions, but no one in the mainstream media wants to call it that. No, so we have seen collapse in the oil prices because demand is way down. We have also seen a collapse in commodity prices across the board. Uh, you know, copper prices, for example, just hit five-year lows. You know, so China is, is, is seeing tremendous slowdown in the, uh, in the real estate market. So again, you know, it's finally beginning to dawn on people that there is no recovery in place in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, or anywhere else. It's a cover-up. And this quantitative easing money has, you know, flooded the economy. <laughs> yeah. Complete phony markets. And this is one of the reasons why the Swiss, you know, moved as they did, you know, to unpeg, I guess you'd call it, the Swiss franc from the dollar. Because, again, you know, we're seeing right now swings of four, 500 points, you know, in, in the Dow. And we're seeing oil plummet and global stock markets beginning to decline because there are no fundamentals to support this. So the markets are running scared and the people and the governments, they're terrified. And, again, if you kind of analyze the situation, whether it's a Davos meeting, whether it's, you know, the Trilateral Commission region, meetings. The situation is, it's easy to explain. We're talking about demand destruction. We're talking about deindustrialization. And we're talking about zero growth. And this is exactly what Bilderbergers and the elite have been planning for a very long time. Because again, if you kind of look at the economy, progress and development is directly proportional to population. So you have progress, you have technology, you have development. People are going to have more money to spend, more mouths to feed bigger families. 
And if you have bigger families in a world which is a finite space with limited natural resources, you're simply not going to have enough food for everybody. That means for the Rockefellers of this world to eat, most of us have to die. And these are the fundamentals of today's economy. And it's very easy to see, you know, you have prototypes staring you in the face. Uh, Detroit is a prototype for the future of humanity. I mean, it looks like today's Detroit, which has been the engine of the United States, you know, technology, economy, engineering might for the past half a century. Today, it looks like a bombed out shell. So post-apocalyptic, you know, Will Smith, I'm legend film. And they want the rest of the world to look like that. I mean, Detroit, it's not a coincidence. It didn't just happen Detroit is a planned, organized deindustrialization of society. And they want Madrid and Toronto and London and Paris and Moscow and, you know, and, and Milan and Rome and every country in the world to look like that. And that's called deindustrialization, demand destruction. And this is what the empire wants. Of course, when we talk about an empire, it's not some, you know, king or queen sitting on a gold-plated throne. Empires are above kings. It's a system of control. It's control of everything by this monetary money to lead by this, you know, financially controlled system by international bankers. And, you know, I guess if people are to participate in self-government, because this is what it's all about. It's about, you know, reestablishing and getting our nation states back. Okay. People must participate in the ideas by which society is self-governed. And of course, this would mean the end of oligarchism. Nations who foster the creative mental development of their population produce people who will not tolerate oligarchic forms of rule indefinitely. Only illiterate, technologically backward populations will. And of course, there's little doubt that the illiteracy and technological backwardness, they're contributing causes for the emergence of oligarchical rules throughout history. And we're seeing it today. And again, it goes back to what we're seeing with debasement of education. We can talk about this on and on until the cows come home. But the point is, we're not better off today than we were five years ago. If anything, we are far worse. And the world is much closer, you know, to this third world war, thermonuclear war, which is going to be the last war we ever fight. Well, you know, it's really all the same playbook. Even look back to 1907 when J.P. Morgan, the old financial luminary that he was, he created such a spiral of turmoil that he crashed the New York Stock Exchange, implementing a central bank fiasco in the scourge that is the cartel of the 1913 Federal Reserve. I mean, just two years ago, we celebrated 100 years. You know, look, you create this unrestricted, unregulated, 100-year-old Federal Reserve fox watching the gold-filled hen house. I mean, there was really nothing stopping the Fed from printing and expanding the supply of Federal Reserve notes. And no thanks to, as you pointed out, Daniel Nixon issuing a decree and then flooding the world with paper dollars and really robbed every nation you know, and then he announces the war on drugs and you saw the Saudi U.S. oil deals, OPEC selling U.S. dollars. I mean, these foreign exchange oil deals made every nation require Federal Reserve notes. So it's pretty stunning the chicanery and the shenanigans, of the petrodollar scheme, when you have this oil-backed currency outspending all the nations in the world. You really create a military juggernaut, a undisputed world heavyweight superpower, and essentially 70% of the Saudi Arabian's wealth landed in where? Well, the good old New York Federal Reserve. So, I mean, for a long time, America essentially had a unlimited credit card. But this warmongering cabal of elite international banksters, I think, Daniel, have really pulled off the greatest heist in human history, essentially robbing every other nation with their petrodollar scheme. And it's interesting that when, uh, remember back in 2000, Hussein said he'd trade oil for euros and then 10 months after a direct assault on the petrodollar, Bush fabricates the whole weapons of mass destruction. You just really see the same playbook playing out, don't you, Her? Absolutely. Well, again, unfortunately, unfortunately, not unfortunately, unfortunately for them, they can't do that with Russia because, you know, Russia has nuclear uh, weapons and it's a, it's a nuclear power and it's, it's a superpower. And uh, that's something that uh, they simply cannot afford. And this is why we're seeing right now some very dangerous uh, games being played out in Ukraine, which is, you know, in, in, in Lithuania, in Latvia, in Estonia, in, in Poland, which are all parroting American lines. 
And unfortunately, again, uh, Ukraine is uh, is what it is. And uh, I certainly hope that NATO doesn't decide to go into Ukraine and help, because if that happens, Russia will be drawn in, and hopefully they won't. But if they do, and if they are, you know, we very much uh, may see a third world war shots exchanged. Then before you know it, uh, you know, nuclear uh, bombs, you know, lobbed at one another. And that pretty much will be the end of it. And I hope we don't get to that point. I hope uh, Obama is impeached before then. But again, these games which are being played right now, they're not so much being played, you know, with the, with the eye on the present as with the eye in the future. Because again, the future of humanity. And I talked about this in uh, in, in my last book, published in, in the United States by Trident Press, Trans Evolution: The Coming Age of Human Deconstruction, where we discuss the whole idea of of human development and technological progress o- over the next few years, and how that technology is 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 uh, is literally taking us. Uh, to conquer out of space. And that's why, again, what you're seeing right now is only not, not the, the war of attrition or for the resources on the planet Earth, but we're also seeing the same thing being played out now in space. The Russians, the Americans, the Chinese, the Indians, you know, European Space Agency, the Japanese, everyone is going to, uh, you know, to try to conquer the moon with all its natural resources. From there, we're going to Mars and to conquer the galaxies. And again, uh, we need to do that because that's where you have the natural resources, which are infinite in space and a finite on the planet Earth. And uh, I just hope that, uh, you know, the, the cooler heads prevail and we're actually going to see nations working together towards common, greater common good, something which was uh, first debated, discussed, and put forward back in 1439 at the Council of Florence, which uh, brought us to where we are today, 600 years later. And uh, again, sincerely hoping that the horrors we're seeing right now on the world stage are not going to turn themselves into into reality. Well, switching gears a little bit, I want to get into a project that you're working on, Daniel. I think it's so exciting. And uh, I want you to get into the fact that the true story of the Bilderberg Group could be coming soon to a theater near you. Talk about the film, what's going on with it, the release date, really where you're going from here. Well, uh, it was was a project that... uh, um, I've been mulling over for, for quite a bit. Uh, you know, the true story of Bilderberg Brook uh, uh, first came out in Spain in 2005 and it immediately became an international bestseller. We've sold over six and a half million copies worldwide in 67 countries. It's been translated into 42 languages uh, on five continents. Over you know, Bilderberg has been you know covered on over 200 covers of international magazines and and journals. You know, had over 5,000 articles written on, on, on me and the Bilderberg Group in, uh, in you know throughout the world. Uh, so you know, the idea that Bilderberg has kind of become trademark for all these private organizations who kind of do things to us from behind the scenes. Although it may not really be so, but it has certainly uh, has become, you know, the catchphrase for, for all these things that are going on. And so about four and a half years ago, I decided to put this idea into motion. And two and a half years ago, we started recording, working on the film. We've done recordings. Uh, we've traveled to, uh, in Spain and Portugal and Italy, Denmark, uh, Belgium, uh, uh, England, Germany, the Netherlands, United States, Canada. I've done interviews with some of the leading researchers around the world. And uh, it's about a $250,000 to $260,000 film, which needless to say, we've, you know, we financed ourselves. Nobody, needless to say, is going to finance a Bilderberg documentary. It's a 90-minute documentary. And it's uh, we're just, you know, the last stages of the post-production. Uh, it's going to be out in theaters uh, by early June. We have some very important international festivals looking at it. They're very, very interested in, in, in the film itself. And we have some major distributors who are interested in distributing it. And um, again, you know, 10 years ago, Builder was a pariah, was a name, you know, which everyone associated with a conspiracy theory. I think, you know, after my Nobel uh, Peace Prize nomination, I think very few people uh, will be able to uh, talk about Bilderberg and Daniel Estelman and call it a conspiracy theory or theorist a documentary. So the idea is that we need just a little bit of money, about $25,000, to get us, you know, over the finish line. And so we've launched a campaign on Rocket Hub, uh, crowdfunding site, to get us a little bit of money. So people can uh, do have a little bit of spare cash. Please go go to Rocket Hub, uh, punch in Bilderberg Group or Bilderberg, uh, the Bilderberg documentary. If you can, you know, donate, give us a little bit of cash. You can get... Uh, 100 people or 200 people donating $20, $30 each, 
We have enough money to actually get us over the finish line. We're almost there. We just need just a little bit more to get some of the top uh, graphic designers and animators in the world to help us. And it does cost a bit of money. And uh, we're just just a little bit short. And we do need it to finish this documentary. And again, it's going to be out in theaters in June. And hopefully we can uh, you know, make it as best uh, looking as possible. Well, making a 90-minute documentary film, especially when, you know, you don't have big Sony pictures picking it up. I mean, it's obviously very expensive, especially if you want that message to resonate across the world. So uh, I've got it linked there, folks, at weekendvigilante.com. I know people are going to pitch in for this. I mean, again, you said you've, what, invested already almost 300000 of your own money. So how many months do we have to come up with this, Daniel? Well, we need it by. Uh, well, we're working on it. We, you know, we, we're working on the film about fourteen hours a day, and so as soon as money starts coming in, you know, it's all going to be uh, welcome. But we have till about, uh, I think, the end of March. Uh, the fundraiser is up and running for the for next forty five days, I think, and uh, uh, in April definitely is going to be the definitive month to get it done and hand it into the uh, distributors and get the big festivals around the world. They have some incredibly big festivals who are very, very interested in documentary. They understand what Bilderberg Club is. They don't care. It's been a long time. They said, you know, time has actually shown that you've been writing so many of these issues, which you've talked about for so many years. And the fact is, is that I'm still here. Bilderberg book is, you know, selling more than ever. And uh, also the fact is that uh, all the things that we've been warning people about for the past 10 years, they're all coming true. My success rate is about 93%. And some of the things that didn't happen, it's not because, you know, they, they, we, we, we were wrong on our information, just because, but because of all the work of the activists and the alternative media precluded the Bilderberg organization from exercising and actually achieving some of these things that they tried to put forward and weren't able to. Well, and I see that you've got uh, quite a few interesting, for example, if people donate 30 or more, they receive a palm of a hand with a donor's name written on it. And of course, if they donate certain amounts, such as 200 or more, you receive a three-page package signed by Daniel. And as well, if you if you actually are able to donate 600 or more, you receive a copy of a video interview. That's an exclusive video interview with Daniel Estelin for your webpage. So I think that's incredible. And I know there's people out there who can donate a lot of money to this. So if you can donate five or 6,000, you'll also receive Daniel's original manuscript. And that's a collector's items. I mean, that's a completely handwritten manuscript of the book that changed the way, including me, that people really look at the political elite. I mean, I don't think I know anyone, Daniel. One of the things that I always really thought, I mean, you didn't just inspire me, you informed me. When I first contacted you back in 2008, you know, I was just a a nobody, a regular Joe, and I really always appreciated the fact that you were very quick to talk to me and tell me what was going on, and I really always appreciated that about you. Pleasure is mine. Well, we know our listeners are loyal. We know we're going to get behind this. We know we're going to be sharing this all over there on Facebook, Twitter, other social media. Well, in the waning moments of the show, Daniel, what do you think the most important thing is for people going forward to know here? Uh, I think it's it's very important for people to understand that, uh, you know, the, the, this whole thing about money, how money works. It's important for people to understand that television is not the truth. It's, it's, it's anything but the truth. The best way to, you know, to, to, uh, to brainwash any sense of reality. People have to understand that the world today is run by monetary systems, not by national credit systems. And, you know, if you're smart, you don't want your country to be run by a monetary system. You want sovereign nation states to have their own credit system, which is the system of their currency, you know, and, and, and a flagship of their independence. And people have to understand that anytime they listen to the mainstream press, most likely they're listening to a particular point of view being propagated by one of these behind-the-scenes conglomerates. Because, again, journalists who work in the mainstream publications, be it television, be it newspapers, be it magazines, you know, be it the radio, they're not independent, they're not free, they're paid you know, by somebody who works at the organization they work for. And, you know, the, the people who work at their organization, they're paid for and uh, watched over by the uh, board of directors. 
who answer you know to the uh, shareholders and the shareholders if you look at the biggest uh, media groups you know it's a tip- typical military industrial complex it's your banks it's your Rockefellers it's the JP Morgans etc so anytime you want to go to the mainstream publications to actually understand how things work you're not going to see anything at all which even vaguely resembles the truth so needless to say support alternative media, go to alternative media publications, and most importantly, begin to think independently, asking key questions such as who benefits from every decision being made by governments and every news story being pushed on us by the mainstream publications. Well, can't agree more. And Daniel, all this has really come at a great personal cost and unimaginable personal risk to you. I know you've undergone incredible lengths to bring to task the crimes of these global elites and inform the public. And I know one time in an interview when asked why you practice such a difficult and controversial brand of journalism, you replied, because universal corruption and abuse of power and privilege at the deepest levels of society must be exposed. And I refuse to turn my back on that. And I thought that was very profound. It is such an honor to have you on the program. Again, we have the information linked there. Folks, get behind this documentary. I can't support this and I can't rave about this enough. Incredible project. Daniel, God bless you for coming on the show and God bless you for what you do. Thank you so much. There's also a trailer of the documentary and people can actually see it uh, so they know what it's about. I think they'll be very, very, very surprised at how uh, not only highly professional it is, but the quality of uh, of the product itself. Well, I know my listeners will really get behind this project, Daniel. So listen, thank you so much, Daniel, for coming on the show today. Thank you so much, Sheila. Send me a link when you can. I'll also put it up on my Twitter account. Absolutely, Daniel. Sounds good. Take care. Well, folks, again, that was the amazing, talented, and wonderful Daniel Estelin. His information is linked there at WeekendVigilante.com. Please, folks, as a favor to me, please get behind this incredible documentary so we can get that out there. It's just such an important project, and I urge you again to, there's a link on my website where you can donate for that. Please do your part. Do what you can. Just really urge people not to be armchair patriots and keyboard commando Christians. Let's get behind things and make a difference. And share this on social media, Twitter, please. I'm urging you guys to do that. That's a huge favor to me. And so, folks, tomorrow I have a really exciting program. We have Dr. Michael Lake, the author of The Shinar Directive. It's an incredible book. There is a great package that Tom Horn has right now on for that book, and we'll talk about that tomorrow. Much, much to get into on that one. And, folks, thank you so much for tuning in today. And I'm going to leave you with some of my favorite clips from a movie that you have to order called Endgame. That's E-N-D-G-A-M-E. It's an Alex Jones documentary. One of the documentaries that certainly was instrumental in waking me up. And I urge every single person to get a copy of Endgame. Give it to your pastor. Give it to the congregants in your church. Give it to your friends. Get a copy of Endgame. And I'm going to leave you with some of my favorite little snippets from that show Endgame, which has Daniel Estelin in it. Thanks for tuning in tonight. Good night, and God bless, folks. My name is Daniel Estelin, and uh, I've been uh, doing this for the last 15 years. Uh, I'm from Canada. I'm very proud of my country because, uh, as you can see, there are a lot of people covering the Bilibur Conference. Last year, uh, it took me 14 and a half hours to get to uh, Munich. I was pulled off the plane in Milan. I was pulled off the plane in Munich. They interrogated me four hours and both places. I was able to call a friend, a journalist in uh, in Rome, as a result of his presence and others calling the foreign ministry department in Italy. They backed off and they let me go. They basically told me that they'll keeping an eye on me 24 hours of the day. Uh, the little hotel where we were staying at, Jim and I, out of the 20 rooms, six were occupied, three by the CIA and three by the uh, German Secret Service. Uh, that's how serious these people are and that's how afraid they are of actually what we may be able to reveal and what we actually do reveal publicly about the Bilderberger intents. Daniel Estelin has covered the Bilderberg meetings in Europe and North America for more than 15 years. His book, Club Bilderberg, has been translated into more than 20 languages and is a global bestseller. Estelin has photographed many past Bilderberg meetings. Rockefeller frontman Henry Kissinger is always a key participant. Here you see the president of the CFR, 
Richard N. Haas, followed by Vice Chairman of Rothschild Europe, Franco Barnaby, who is speaking with Henry Kravitz. And behind them is Richard Holbrook, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations. The head of Daimler Chrysler, Jürgen Eric Shrimp, arrives by helicopter. Here, the owner of the Washington Post, Donald Graham, escorts Indra Nui, the head of PepsiCo. Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, whose father, Prince Bernhard, founded Bilderberg, is a leading figure in the group. Of course, globalist kingpin David Rockefeller, seen here with his bodyguard, James Ford, always attends. The then newly appointed World Bank chief, Paul Wolfowitz, is photographed at Bilderberg 2005. It has been reported that Wolfowitz had attended previous meetings while still the Deputy Secretary of Defense, a violation of the Logan Act. Under the Logan Act, it is a felony offense for any member of the federal or state government to meet with members of a foreign government without the express authority and authorization of the President or Congress. Put simply, it is illegal for members of the government to meet secretly behind closed doors with foreign power brokers due to the problems of corruption and espionage that it breeds. For this reason, many prominent politicians attend, but their names do not appear on the official list. Despite the Logan Act, the governor of New York's name, George Pataki, does appear on the list. And we were able to catch the governor on tape, walking with David Rockefeller at Brook Street. Multiple staff members inside Brook Street reported to us that Hillary Clinton attended for half a day. Several armored limos with diplomatic plates did arrive with police escorts and offloaded their passengers in the underground parking garage out of the sight of the press. Former World Bank President James Wolftonson sardonically stared at our cameras. Uh, over the last couple of years, they've been reeling with the amount of leakage that they've been experiencing, so it's getting harder and harder. But again, it will never get too hard for us because of the sources that we have inside, are top-notch sources, people who are actually working for them, the Secret Service, the second-layer uh, people in the Bilderbergers, uh, the, the clerks, the, uh, the administrative office, they are there. They, you know, they are our eyes and ears, and uh, every time there's something out, we always get the information. That's uh, I think that's the queen. You see her? What usually happens, uh, the Secret Service guys who are protecting the, uh, the Bilderberg delegates, uh, the staff, the cooks, the chefs, when they actually get to see and to hear what some of these uh, nasty people are talking about, uh, they're the first ones to look for us and the first ones to make sure that we get the information uh, from the meeting. We, uh, again, we're very rigorous with information that does come out. We double, triple, and quadruple the uh, confirm the sources, make sure that all the information checks out. A lot of the stuff, the Bilderbergers have planted information, make sure that you know this disinformation nullifies the, the, the accuracy of the reporting, which is why we never publish the first thing we hear. The decisions that these people take, again, they're not only decisions affect business community, they affect politics, business, environment, across the entire spectrum. And these decisions are made and taken by a very elite group of people behind closed doors this year at the Brook Street Hotel. We are not private to these decisions. We're not allowed to know what they're talking about. But we'll definitely feel the consequences of these decisions over the next 12 months when events which apparently by accident seem to happen, in fact, have been planned right here this year at Brook Street Hotel between 8th and 11th of June. What does it do when you get 120 of the most powerful people in the world getting together to have meetings with government officials? I mean, that, that's amazing. And that's fascism. Ladies and gentlemen, we're here in Canada today to stand up against the Bilderberg Group that is attempting to get rid of the sovereignty of the United States. The truth of your world government has now been exposed. We know you are ruthless. We know you are evil. To David Rockefeller, to the Rothschild representatives here, to the Queen of the Netherlands, to all of you, we tell you, you are not our queens. You are not our kings. You are not our gods. We do not belong to you. We are not your slaves. We stand as free humans have stood since the beginning of time against the strong men, against the thugs, against the bullies. We will defeat your world government. We will defeat world taxation. We will defeat your control grid. God is on our side. I stand before the creator of the universe, 
And I ask the creator of the universe, as our founding fathers did in 1776, to lead God and direct us, and to give us the power and the foresight and the understanding and the will to stand against your entire agenda, including your final plan of world population reduction of 80% that Henry Kissinger penned in 1973. Why do you put mercury in the vaccines, stand sodium fluoride in the water? Why? Why do you put cancer viruses in the vaccines? Why have you used depleted uranium now in four separate nations? You're arrogant. You have the sickness that elites have had throughout history in their literal and, in some cases, figurative ivory towers. You believe that you're invincible. You will and you are failing now. Your new world order will fall. Humanity will defeat you. The answer to 1984 is 1776.